working our way through the book of Revelation. And uh, understanding that weird book of Revelation. We've been away from this now for what? World Impact, and then I was away. So for a couple of Sundays, we've been away from it. And so I thought, we're right at chapter 18. And the topic is what you need to know about God's coming judgment. And we looked at a few truths from last week. If I could just paint in some really broad strokes here. The important things to remember about the book of Revelation are you have the seven seals running right to the end. In the seventh seal, you actually have the seven trumpets running right to the end. And within the seventh trumpet, you have the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out quickly, taking us right to the end. That's one important interpretive key. Um, The other is you have these three uh, forces uniting in the end times. Antichrist, you have Antichrist and and the uh, political structures of the day coordinated against the propagation of the gospel and the message of the kingdom. You have the false prophet, Antichrist, false prophet, which represents um, the religious structures of the end times. Political structures, Antichrist, religious structures, false prophet, so that uh, religions of the world will be viewed, the way it'll work is, they'll be viewed all proclaiming equal truth. And so any religion like Christianity that claims unique truth will meet with religious opposition increasingly in the last days. And then you have this, so Antichrist, political structures, false prophet, religious structures. Babylon is mentioned in different ways. We've started to look at that two weeks ago. Babylon representing, so persecution of a political nature, persecution of a religious nature, but this isn't persecution, this is seduction, Um, acclimatization to the standards and values of the culture. That's what Babylon represents. And you'll see at various times, you'll see these three united, kind of commingling. You'll see it if you look carefully in the text that we're continuing in tonight that we started in a couple weeks ago. You'll see all three of these kind of commingling and affecting each other. Because it's not going to be a neat system like that. It's, it's a, John's visions are seeing as separate entities things which really unite and amalgamate and merge against Christ and his kingdom in the last days. <clears throat> a third interpretive key is to see how what the book of Revelation does over and over again is it picks Old Testament themes. And John, in his vision, he sees that in the end times, there will be events that are similar to, they're deeper than, more powerful than, but similar to works that we've already seen in the Old Testament. So, we've heard the saints around the throne singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Well, why Moses and the Lamb? Because, because uh, we're meant to see this, this whole plan of redemption, the continuing of the Old Covenant into the New and the completion of it. Uh, you'll see when these plagues are poured out, these pictures of plagues that are poured out, we looked at them, by Antichrist, and, and they're awfully similar to the plagues that were poured out 
uh, on Pharaoh in Egypt. And so what we're meant to do as we read that, we're meant to say, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be like that, only more so. And Babylon... Why Babylon? Why is this, why is this end-time, seductive pull of, of people away from the Lord? Why is it called Babylon? Well, because you can see the prophecies about literal Babylon in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, and the writer is saying, it's, it's, it's going to be like that. Same in the end time. Those are the key things to keep in mind. Let me read this text to you. It's a long text. Revelation 18. I read this two weeks ago, right through, and I'm going to do it once more because we've been away from it for a while. After this means there's this series of visions. He doesn't get the whole truth in any one vision. It's like snapshots that he gets. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, and this relates to Babylon, that third power. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. Now, in the sequence of the book of Revelation, Babylon hasn't fallen yet. God hasn't poured out his judgment on Babylon yet, but he's seeing what's going to come, okay? She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth, okay, remember I said political and religious and Babylon, they, they co-mingle. Now you have the kings of the earth, see? The structuralization of wickedness, laws, The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth, that's the financial structures, have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share her plagues. Just a very simple thought there. Sharing in the sins means taking part in the suffering for the sins. Like, you're not immune because you have a label. You're immune from being separate. Five, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Why high as heaven? Well, that's a way of picturing that God sees. This reaches God. God has remembered her iniquities. It's, it's important to remember that he hasn't taken his eyes off this planet. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she has glorified herself and lived in luxury. So it's not just sexual immorality, and it's not a woman. Babylon is not a woman. It's a city. Uh, it's a structure. It's a power. And it's, not just, and it's not just the loosening of sexual moors. It's materialism. Lived in luxury, a dedication to material things. That kind of cuts a little closer to home, doesn't it? So give her like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart, she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow. Mourning I shall never see. Just this blindness to the future and consequence. For this reason, her plagues will come 
in a single day. Remember I said the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out so quickly, suddenly, climactically. Watch the time references. Her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord who has judged her. And the kings of the earth, there's the political, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for, here it is, in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. They made a fortune on this. Structuralized wickedness makes a lot of money. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented woods, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense. You say, okay, okay already, I get the picture. Wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. That's interesting. The pronouncement continues against Babylon 14. The fruit for which your soul has longed for has gone from you. There's there's no future in this. There's There's no satisfaction in this. Sin is always addictive and never sensible. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping, mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen. Well, cities aren't clothed in linen, but it's a vision. You you get what he's seeing here. Clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood afar off and and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? So there's this shock that there's an end to all of this. Think about that. And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven. This doesn't seem nice, does it? Now talk about it. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. What's that about? 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone. So you get this picture now. John sees this. Threw it into the sea. This is a mighty angel. You know how big a millstone is? Okay. This angel, this one angel picks up this millstone, throws it like a frisbee right out into the ocean. This is one powerful angel. Not one of those wimpy cherubs that you hang on Christmas trees. Useless things. In a diaper yet. Hate those things. 21. 
Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, this is what's going to come. It hasn't happened yet. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard no more. Just silence. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill in you will be heard no more. The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Last week, two weeks ago, highlighted, and I'm doing this in two minutes, three points. First, we looked at the judgment of Babylon and the reason for it. And the reason for it is not only is Babylon rich and excessive in her materialism and her lawlessness, but she actively engages others, pulls others into her own sin. So first and foremost, Babylon is a recruiter of others in the cause of immorality and in the cause of materialism. That's why the old King James, nobody uses the word anymore, but the old King James talks about it being a whore. The second thing we looked at was this plea for separation that's given to the godly in verses 4 and and 5. So Babylon is going to be judged, just like the literal Babylon of the Old Testament was judged. That Old Testament picture You know, when the prophet Jeremiah predicted the destruction of Babylon, he was ridiculed because because there was nothing about Babylon that any other nation could touch. And that's why this old, this this end time uh, power of temptation and allure, that's why it's called Babylon. Could have been named anything. There is no Babylon anywhere. Could have been called anything, but it's called Babylon because it's going to be similar to that situation. And the third thing that we looked at really quickly was the justice of God's judgment in verses 6 through, through 8. And we looked at the prophecy about Old Testament Babylon. It's in the book of Isaiah, and I read these words. Here was Babylon. You, you felt secure in your wickedness. This is Isaiah speaking to Old Testament Babylon before it fell. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am, and there was no one besides me. So this this pomp, this arrogance, a world that feels absolutely safe and confident in ignoring God. So those are the three points that that we looked at. So we're going to pick up with the fourth point. We're all on board? Okay. Four. The lament of the people of the earth for Babylon. When you read 9 through 19, you, 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 especially at the end, I won't read it, I just read it, so I'm not reading it all again, but especially when you come to the end, you see this group of people these merchants who had lost money, um, leaders who were sensing they were going down with the ship. You get to around 16, 
And there's this cry, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And, and the shipmasters and the seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea, they stood afar off and they cried out. As they saw the smoke of her burning, what what city was like the great city? And they throw dust on their foreheads. Alas, alas, for the great city. So John sees the morning, not morning a.m., but morning M-O-U-R, morning of two distinct groups of people. He sees sees the morning of the kings of the earth in verse 9. And he sees the morning of the merchants of the earth in verse 11. So they're the ones who grieve. They grieve at the fall of Babylon. It's a selfish grief. They had become rich and fat and successful on their unholy alliance with Babylon. Remember I said one of the key interpretive points for Revelation is remembering Antichrist political structures, the false prophet religious structures. So now you see these these two groups prospering from Babylon and the way Babylon would pull people into its own value system, its own network of iniquity. So these political leaders, economic leaders, they establish and promote the financial structure set up under Antichrist. And so Babylon represents all that will flourish under this corrupt system. When it falls, when it falls, the earth's movers and shakers, the people that looked invincible, the people who looked like they could ignore God successfully, the the kings and the merchants of the earth, the big wheels, all of a sudden they're vulnerable. All of a sudden their might is gone. Their influence, their protection, everything that separated them, and so they will, they will feel the heat of the fall of Babylon first. And it's, it's just the flip, the exact opposite of Christians. Those who abstain from the mark of the beast were the first to feel the pain of persecution. I don't know if you remember that in, in Revelation 13. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain and it causes all both small and great rich and poor free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name So Christians were the first to feel the heat of that system. And now at the judgment, the collapse of this system, the kings and the merchants of the earth, they're the ones who feel it. They know they've been so closely united to Babel. Think about this. I mean, you know, we're we're big enough to get the picture. So here's here's Babylon. And and it's a it's a a system of wealth and corrupt values and the kings and leaders of the earth are set. How would you picture the closeness of the relationship? Well, the way, the way it's revealed in this vision picture is they've, 
they've literally committed immorality with this system. They're, they're in bed with Babylon. Can I say it like that? That's what's happening here. They're tied to that system. And so they can't help but receive, receive her judgment. No wonder. They begin to wail. You can hear their cry of, of unbelief. It's in different places. Revelation 18, verse 11, you'll see it. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. And then 14 through 19, the very same thing. So, the lament of the people of the earth for Babylon. Now, just as there's this lament, the kings and the merchants of the earth, the leaders who have bought into this end-time system that ignores Christ. There's an outburst of praise. And a lot of people are troubled by this. I thought, I wasn't going to deal with it, and I thought, I better say something about it. There's this strange outburst of praise from the righteous, from the godly, at the judgment of Babylon. So you see these merchants and kings In verse 19 of chapter 18, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. And then, here's the opposite. Rejoice over her. Rejoice. So the kings and merchants of the earth, alas, alas, oh no, they're crying. Heaven and the saints and the apostles and the prophets rejoice over her. The judgment that she's receiving, the hurt, the pain. Rejoice over her, O heaven and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. There's no remorse for Babylon among the righteous. Does that seem strange to you? It did to me when I read it. Does it seem harsh? Does it seem strange that the righteous would not feel the least sorry for Babylon? I mean, aren't we called even now to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us? Somebody pretty significant said that. Why is there this unrestrained rejoicing over the destruction of this wicked Babylon? And here's what I think is the key to understanding this. I think the key is found in remembering that now we forgive our enemies. We bless those who persecute us because now there is a striking chance for our love and grace to be a cause of wicked people seeing the mercy of Jesus and repenting. Our unforgiving hearts can be a real obstacle for wicked people coming to repentance. And our genuine love, even for our enemies, can lead them to see the beauty of Jesus and his grace. Here's the passage I think that's so relevant here. Romans 12, 19 and 20. Beloved Christians, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, 
if your enemy is hungry, your enemy. It's not just some poor person on the street and you say, go buy a sandwich. Everybody does that. This is the guy that cheats you, robs you, slanders you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. He's going to feel conviction. He's going to feel his, his, own, his own wickedness more intently, and, and he'll be drawn somehow by your love and grace. Well, how come God can, how come it's okay for God? Vengeance is mine. Never avenge yourself. Leave room, leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And, and the idea here is this. The lost, even those who hurt me personally, can be reached through my prayers and my love. But, but this has come to the place now. This is the final judgment. This is the end. This is, this is people who have all along left it to the wrath of God. But now the wrath of God is being poured out. This is the final judgment. There will be no softening of hearts before God. This is the time of the final vengeance of the Lord. It's given as a final vindication of God's justice against sins that were never retaliated against by God's people. Did you hear that? Sins that were never retaliated against. By you, by me. It wasn't our job to retaliate. It wasn't our job to go for vengeance. It is God's job at the end to pour out wrath and judgment. And so Christians magnify God's justice at the end in a way that that we would now express our love even when we're persecuted with the hope that they'll turn to Christ. But this is past that. This is past that. This is the final judgment. True, vengeance is not mine, but in the end, when Jesus comes, it will be his right and time to judge. We're almost done. Another picture of the destruction of Babylon. You see it in 21 to 24. Are you still with me? Okay, we're 10 minutes. Then a mighty angel... 21 of, verse, of chapter 18. Took up a stone, I commented on this, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea. And, and, and he says, in effect, this is a picture. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And then this whole list of things that will be no more. Harpists, musicians, flute players, trumpeters, heard no more. No more craftsmen. No more light from the lamp, no more bridegroom and bride, no more weddings, no celebrations, no receptions. Once again, John frames this final picture of Babylon's judgment, and he frames it in the exact terms. This is what I want you to see. Because the book of Revelation does this over and over again. It takes end time events because it's written to largely Jewish believers, not exclusively, but many. And these end time prophetic events are framed in a way that they can picture. And the way they are framed is they're constantly likened to Old Testament happenings. 
And he does it again here with this reference to Babylon. Let me just read you now from Jeremiah 51. And if you didn't have your Bible open before you and I read these words, you would almost think you're reading the book of Revelation. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon. Okay, that's what we're going to be looking at. And it just says all these words that are written concerning Babylon. Jeremiah said to Sariah, this is a, a, one of the scribes, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place, Babylon, that you will cut it off. Listen to these words now. So that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast. It shall be desolate forever. And when you finish reading this, tie a stone to it and cast it in the midst of the Euphrates. What did the angel do? He said, here's a picture of what's coming to Babylon, like a millstone, and he cast it into the sea. That's Revelation. Here's first Babylon that was actually destroyed. Jeremiah says, when you get this writing, take it, tie it to a stone and cast it into the Euphrates River. And say, thus shall Babylon sink and rise no more. Because of the disaster I am bringing upon her, and they should become exhausted. Striking. Striking. So, so millennia after, we see the final judgment, the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in a way that Jeremiah, I'm sure, never understood it. He was describing Old Testament Babylon and its, and its persecution of God's people. And it's corruption of God's people. But his words, his words ring down over the centuries and over the millennia. And they find registry in the book of Revelation. This final Babylon. This corrupt world system. Being used by Antichrist and the false prophet. This empire will meet the very same end. The very same destruction. And so all of the activities of mighty Babylon... The things that marked its might and glory. Look around you. Look around you and see the, the massive earthly structures that are designed to do nothing but promote the desire for wealth and greed. Massive systems, massive empires. And 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 whole businesses that are, that are geared, making fortunes around the mocking of biblical values. And laws that get passed that don't line up with biblical values. You know, it's, it's, an, it's an endless smog out there. And none of it looks like it's about to collapse. Am I right? It thrives. How could that suddenly disappear in one hour? And our writer says, go back and look at Jeremiah. And what he said about Babylon, the mightiest, wealthiest nation on planet earth at that time. See what God did to it. See, that's the take home for people like us. The call of the Holy Spirit the call of the Holy Spirit not to mistake the temporal for the eternal. The call of the Holy Spirit to the church in the last days 
never to rule out the judgment of God and God's promised future, what he has for his people and what he has for those who reject him in the face of all unlikelihood. Boy, you could probably say the same thing that I say. I can kick myself for the number of weeks that roll by that I don't forget that there's this, uh, forgive me for the fancy word, but the eschatological, that's end times. I can go weeks without thinking about the eschatological nature of my life, that, it's, that we're only going in one direction. It is coming to an end. And all of the things that look so permanent and worth our time and worth our attention and worth our affection, they can be gone in an hour. In a single day, you read that phrase over and over again. So Peter writes to the New Testament church and he says, in view of these things, you know the passage, what, what manner of people ought you to be? The essence of an eschatological discipleship is you, you never take your eyes off the end game. You live life with your eyes on the end game. You know where things are going. And you don't get fooled by appearances. God help us to keep alert, right? 